Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. We've got my buddy, Dan Cleland, CEO and founder of Soltara, which uh, many of you have heard me speak about as perhaps my, my favorite place to sit with ayahuasca on the planet. If you've ever been curious about it, or even if you've been to other places and uh, you love the place that you go to, still worth taking a deep dive into this one and much more because Dan is not just a healing center. Dan is the man, a, the human being that has done a lot of cool shit, traveled the world and really gleaned a lot of beautiful insight and information that I'm sure you guys are going to dig. There are a number of ways that you guys can support this podcast. Number one, click subscribe. Don't miss a single episode. Number two, leave us a five-star rating with one or two ways the show has helped you out in life. And three, support our amazing sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Dry Farm Wines. Dry Farm Wines makes extraordinary natural wines. They are 100% organically grown and biodynamically farmed lab tested for purity. They have a lower alcohol percentage. That means you can drink more and get away with it. Each bottle is under 12.5% per volume. Keto and paleo friendly and sugar free. Zero to 0 0.15 grams per glass. That's uh, pretty remarkable. And you can get an extra penny bottle. That's one extra bottle in your subscription for a penny. Simply by going to dryfarmwines.com slash Kyle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Kyle. We are also brought to you today by PowerDot. PowerDot is absolutely exceptional. It's really great for athletic performance. It helps you improve muscle recovery, supplement strength training, and effectively warm up the muscles to improve post-activation performance. It's also excellent for natural pain relief. It blocks the pain signals and promotes the release of endorphins. And for injury rehab, it improves blood circulation and nutrients to improve recovery and activate muscles in a non-load-bearing environment to fight muscle atrophy. This is perfect because when you're hurt, you can't train. But you slap these pads on while you're watching Gaia TV or listening to a podcast, and all of a sudden you're going to prevent muscle loss as well as activate the nervous system and pump more blood and nutrients to get there to heal quicker. All sorts of cool stuff. They also use Smart Recovery AI, which integrates with Strava and Apple Health, tracks your workouts and provides customized recovery programs based on your activities and guides you through each program from start to finish. There's in-app education with a news feed so you can learn from professionals and explore content that will help you become a better athlete. And there's a forum so you can connect with other PowerDot users and learn how they are getting the most out of their device. Uh, my favorite thing right here is the Pro Bundle. You get a duo and three extra set of pads, which allows you to stimulate two areas at once and spend less time recovering. Many of you listening to me on this podcast, convenience is the key. Uh, many different people I've had on this show have talked about convenience. So when you make it convenient, your health becomes a little easier to achieve. And this is certainly one of the ways to do that. You're going to save 25 bucks and an additional 20% off with the code KKP. So head over to powerdot.com slash KKP and enter code work KKP for 20% off everything. That is P-O-W-E-R-D-O-T dot com slash KKP and use code word KKP at checkout. There's also a um, side note here, a couple, couple spots left. There's literally two spots left. This isn't some weird uh, marketing ploy. I've taken <laughs> some different courses on that, believe it or not. And this has nothing to do with, oh guys, look, we've only got two spots left. But I talked with, I think once on this podcast, actually a couple weeks back, 
about the sacred hunting experience that we've got going on with my buddy Monsel Denton, who's been on the podcast before. The secret hunting experience is going to be between February 11th and 14th, just outside of Austin, Texas. We're probably going to go to West Texas and we will be collaborating to create a space to both learn the basics of how to track, stock, and kill, as well as field dress, wild game and animals. And my brother, Mike Salemi, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, is going to be providing combo, which is a completely legal frog medicine and uh, some really, really cool ceremonial practices that we'll do out there along with indigenous ceremonies to make this a truly transformative rite of passage. Uh, we're really keeping this down to a minimum number of people due to the fact that the combo ceremony does take some time and we go individually. So not going to be a ton of people here. We will be able to dive deep into these practices as well as really get to know each other. So it's an excellent way to get to know like-minded individuals and have a very hands-on real-world experience in nature. There's going to be nothing like this one. So if you want more details, you are going to head over to sacredhunting.com slash Kyle to sign up, and then you'll have a phone call, which will explain and answer any and all questions with Monsel. So that's S-A-C-R-E-D-H-U-N-T-I-N-G.com slash Kyle, and you can check that out. Today's show is also brought to you by sportsbettingdime.com. If you're looking for odds and analysis of the sports, entertainment, or political world, check them out. And although which side of the fence you're on, I think the political world might be, it might be a done deal. It really just depends uh, which reality tunnel you're tracking, but I'll just leave it there. You can get into analytics and finer details of sports using their futures trackers, which cover every major league, so you always know who has the best shot of taking home the title. They also cover mixed martial arts, Conor McGregor's fighting again, boxing, and have daily coverage of political odds updated on the regular. Head over to their news feed to get all the action today. Check it out at sportsbettingdime.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T-T-I-N-G-D-I-M-E.com. And last but definitely not least, we are brought to you by my boys at Buy Optimizers. There's never been a bad time to boost your immune system, but I don't need to tell you how important a strong immune system is right now, given the global health crisis that's spreading across the planet or has spread across the planet. P3OM are probiotics that improve your digestion and nutrient absorption, helping ensure your digestive tract and immune system stay strong and healthy. While many other probiotics on the market don't even survive your own stomach acid, P3OM is fully tested to make sure the probiotic strains not only survive in your body, but also don't compete with each other. So you're as protected as possible from the growth of bad bacteria and other pathogens. While other probiotics require refrigeration and often die in transport and on the shelf, P3OM does not need refrigeration at all. It's also been clinically proven to give you more energy, less bloating, more mental clarity, and to shift your metabolism into fat-burning mode. I love that shit. Into fat-burning mode. So if you're ready to boost your immune system, have healthier digestion, and burn fat, go to bioptimizers.com slash kingsboo. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com forward slash kingsboo and use promo code KINGSBOO10 in all caps, K-I-N-G-S-B-U-10, the number, and you'll get 10% off your next order. Two things to remember, bioptimizer.com slash KINGSBOO and promo code KINGSBOO10. And guys, all this is in the show notes. So if you're going to listen to this episode, maybe you're driving a car like I do when I listen to podcasts, you don't want to write this shit down, do not worry. You can go over there and one-click it. Just remember or scroll back to get that promo code in. All right, lots of love to you all. Welcome, my dude, Dan Cleland.
All right, second clap. Dan Cleland, thanks for joining the show, brother. It's so good to have you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for making the time and for inviting me on. Well, we just we just crushed a good one on uh, your podcast. What's the name of your podcast? Daniel Cleland Podcast, man. Oh, I love it. Keep it simple, just like me. Well, I will link to us in the show notes of this podcast, uh, unless you're releasing that one later. Either way, I'll send people uh, your way by linking one of those podcasts. Maybe you can send text me uh, one of your favorites to link in there. But um, absolutely, dude, it's it's so good having you on. We got to meet and fit for service in our in our freshman year and uh, first year running. Got to get to know you and. Um, what you've done. You're an entrepreneur, a Canadian, uh, you're into uh, heavy metal and all sorts of good shit like that. And then found plant medicines, created Soltara down in Costa Rica, which is my absolute favorite place I've ever done ayahuasca at working with Shipibo shaman and bringing them there. So much good stuff to talk about, but let's talk about your trajectory. You know, what was life like growing up for you? When did you find uh, this path that, that kind of shifted your reality? Well, good question. It's a, it's a bit of a winding journey, but um, I, I guess starting off in kind of two tracks, um, you know, growing up in Canada, fairly normal upbringing with the kind of standard traumas that everybody acquires growing up, you know, some more than others. But um, I, uh, I found myself kind of following the, the, the typical path high school, college, get a job, start working. I didn't actually graduate college. Um, I circled through a few different programs and then, and then, you know, basically just quit and, uh, and wanted to get out in the working world. So I ended up uh, taking, uh, getting into the sales industry. So started working in sales, started off at residential and then climb the ladder to uh, commercial and then climb the ladder a little bit more to industrial. And I found myself in what would be considered like a pretty good job, like the kind of job where like, Hey dad, look at me. I've got a real job. You know, I've got my car, I've got my car payments and you know, I'm a real man now. Right. And, um, lived that for maybe two or three years and just got to a point where I was like, I was kind of like 25 years old and you know, still hanging out with all the same guys that I grew up with, high school, college and everything, living together, all of us in Calgary, kind of doing the same shit over and over and over, week in, week out, this kind of, you know, uh, unconscious lifestyle, I guess you can say, just going to work, paying the bills, going out in the weekend, getting smashed, you know, trying to trying to find uh, female companionship, waking up on Sunday with a hangover, going to work on Monday with a hangover and just doing the same routine week in and week out. And I found myself thinking at that time, like, that's not what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. And I'm not feeling like, well, you know, at that time, um, I was getting some pressure from my, my, my dad, who's an important figure in my life to settle down, you know, settle down, get a long-term girlfriend and wife and have a family like a lot of my peers were doing at that time, you know, growing up in a small Canadian town, very uh, blue collar and very uh, uninventive, let's say when it comes to life paths. So at that point, I wanted to explore the world and start traveling and start, uh, start having some adventure in my life and do something different and make something kind of big in myself. So that's when I started traveling South America. I did a trip, my first trip to Brazil in 2006, planned it all out, 
um, you know, executed it all myself, learned some Portuguese, went and, and just made a ton of friends and connections and had this amazing time. And then I get back to Canada in the middle of January in 2007. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Canada, but it is damn cold in Calgary in the middle of January. So I'm just coming up from like the summer in Brazil, get to Calgary. It's absolutely freezing. Didn't like winter to begin with, but then I'd, I'd had a glimpse of what something different could be like. You know, I hadn't been, I had never lived outside of Canada uh, at that uh, until then. So that got me into the world of travel. I started traveling uh, a few months after I got back to Canada. I quit my life in Canada and I started, I took a, a job working as a tour leader for a company called G Adventures. It was then called Gap Adventures. And my goal was to get back down to Brazil, but they, they had an interim station for me in Costa Rica and Panama because my Spanish wasn't so good. So they stationed me there. I ended up working for the better part of a year in Costa Rica and Panama, guiding groups around. So I, I got involved in tourism. I got involved in group dynamics and learning Spanish and learning how to you know, execute a plan with a group of people. Um, and the, you know, the kind of the sales and the interpersonal skills and everything kind of was practiced there and came into play. So I did that. Um, I ended up eventually transferring back down to Brazil. That was uh, my initial goal um, at the end of uh, that year. So I started running this trip down in Brazil, 42 day massive journey over land and over water from Caracas, Venezuela, all the way down through the Brazilian Amazon, all the way down the Brazilian coast, stopping in Rio de Janeiro and then going in reverse. So that was kind of like the one track of how I got involved in tourism. And after I quit that job, I, uh, I wanted to do something bigger with my life. I mentioned that I, I didn't really do anything in, in high school or college. I, did, I had terrible marks. I didn't really apply myself. I was partying the whole time. And um, so I quit that job to go and further my education and actually go to university. So I was about like 27 at the time. I go back to Canada. I enroll in uh, some university courses and I had to spend the first year just upgrading courses because my marks were piss poor before. And, you know, that was in 2008, 2000, yeah, 2008. So different time, different era. You know, it was right when the, uh, the, the, the financial crisis was happening. Um, and, you know, at that time, there was more of a promise to having a degree. You know, it was more of a big thing to have a degree back like, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. So I felt kind of naked without it. And I didn't even really know anything about entrepreneurship. It was always like trying to find the job that I like, trying to find the path that I like. Um, and I, I felt like the, the higher education was an important part of that. So I go back to school, spend a year. And at the end of that year... Um, one of my environmental issues uh, professors was doing a trip to Australia, to like a month-long trip to Australia to do some kind of a conservation study with a group of students. So my sense of adventure got the best of me. I took that trip and I, my mind started, you know, kind of going off in different directions when I decided to take that trip. And I thought, well, maybe I want to continue this higher education in Australia so I applied for University of Australia with that year's marks that I had just gotten and go to Australia, undergo this field trip with the students. 
And uh, once uh, once I get there, I find out I get accepted. So I decided to stay in Australia and just try to work and pay for this uh, tuition. But of course, being the financial crisis, um, the uh, the the Canadian government loans were were part of the subsidy for my education, and my dad was also helping me out. But he just retired, and he just put all of his pension into an investment, which he just lost like 25% of because of the financial crisis. So he was not helping me out anymore. And I was paying international student fees in Australia. And because of the kind of protectionism uh, aspect of, of the economy there after the big financial crisis, it was very difficult for me to work. So I ended up going totally off track of that education, which I felt at the time was of paramount importance. And I ended up having to work like door-to-door sales jobs in Australia, barely making enough to get by. Everything went totally off track. I got really depressed, got really hard on myself. You know, I couldn't get a decent job because everybody only wanted Australia or New Zealand residents because there are fewer jobs because of the crisis. And I forfeit my ticket home. So I had no money to do anything. It was just a real kind of uh, dismal, depressing situation for me at the time, you know, I, I made some friends at a good time, but that's not what I was there for. I was not there for a vacation. I was not there to work a sales job. I was there to further my education and make something of myself and do something big with my life. I felt I was destined to do. Um, so just about a year into that stay, maybe nine months into that stay, um, I actually had a big accident. I was, uh, I was out partying and drinking one night, drinking a lot of whiskey, Jim Beam, and I went uh, rock climbing, for lack of a better term, uh, down in, uh, in uh, South Bank Park uh, in Kangaroo Point. I ended up scaling this 20-meter cliff and couldn't quite get to the top. I tried to get to the top, but I ran to an overhang that was impassable. And uh, I, I fell 20 meters off of this cliff in the middle of the night. It was at like one in the morning. I was by myself wearing dress shoes and like bar clothes. And uh, hit the ground, shattered my femur, compound fracture. The femur breaks out the side of my leg, just barely misses my femoral artery, degloves my whole thigh, pulls all the skin up my thigh. Pelvis breaks in half like that, like they call it a, a shear fracture. So just like the pelvis, just so I landed, half my pelvis goes up into my diaphragm. The femur breaks and splits out the side of my leg. So like highly traumatic injury. Um, I had to call the ambulance who came and uh, took me to the, the Wollongabba hospital where I spent the next 40 days and 40 nights laying in a hospital bed. The first week I was there, I had this big exoskeleton on top of me, like screwed into my bones, kind of holding me together. Then they eventually did a big surgery, put a bunch of titanium in me, put a rod from knee to hip and a big plate across my pelvis. You know, I spent over a month just sitting there on morphine drip and taking Oxycontin all day, every day, like nurses wiping my ass, lost all the feeling in my, uh, in my uh, member and <laughs> was, you know, it was like, is, you know, they nerve damage. They said, you know, I don't, you know, they didn't know if it was going to come back or not. Like they never know with nerve damage. And so that was really the ultimate rock bottom in my life. It was like, I'd already gotten off track you know, from a career perspective and from a financial perspective, I had no relationships. I was getting shut down by the ladies left, right, and center. And then I fell off this cliff and and shattered my whole body and literally, you know, in the hospital, broken and broke and depressed and, you know, borderline suicidal. 
So, so then while I was in the hospital, I'm like, I need some help. And I started researching ayahuasca in a very serious way. This was back in 2009, 2010. And that was really when I first started to seriously consider it. And basically, you know, long story short, once I got better uh, and able to walk around, I spent a little bit of time in a wheelchair, spent a little bit of time on crutches. And uh, then when I was able to kind of walk around, I got up and uh, essentially left Australia. I quit. I go back to Canada, back to my parents' house, like, you know, into my mother's arms kind of thing, like just basic life recovery and kind of had to start all over again. I had to get another sales job in Canada and start working for my dad, selling solar panels and um, eventually found uh, a job in environmental management out in BC. So I go out to BC And then during that training program, a friend of mine invited me down to New Mexico to drink medicine. So I I traveled out of New Mexico, uh, take three days off, literally in the middle of the training program, told them I had a wedding to go to. I take a ferry from Victoria down to Seattle, fly from Seattle to Albuquerque, spend a night in Albuquerque, drive out five hours through the mountains of New Mexico to uh, Gila, New Mexico, rocked a massive ceremony there. Um, did a double dose. And fortunately I did because I only had that one ceremony and that ceremony basically just uh, shattered me. Like it just, it, it just brought me to my knees. It was, you know, I, at that point I had uh, worked with psychedelics, you know, two or 300 times with, with, uh, with mushrooms and with LSD uh, many ceremonies. And it was already a sacrament for me. Like I'd already experienced many kind of spiritual experiences with mushrooms or with LSD, but that was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. It got deeper. It was way more intense. It was way more uh, overpowering and profound than any other experience I'd ever had in my life. And after that massive ceremony that for me, it just, it really opened up uh, the channels of healing for me. It, it allowed me to to grieve for some things that I had been holding on to. It allowed me to begin healing a relationship with my father, which I think you know also also played a, a role for you uh, in your journeys. It uh, it showed me that I actually did love myself and that I should forgive myself for for my mistakes and for getting off track and for doing all the things that in my past that were kind of just residual, uh, residual traumas in my, in my being that were just basically overpowering any of the good in my life. It was preventing me from doing any, from living up to my, my potential, from finding my path. It was just self-sabotage all the time. Anytime something good was going to happen, I would self-sabotage because fundamentally I didn't believe that I deserved any of it. So, so that ceremony helped me to really start to forgive myself and really start to allow myself to heal. So it set me on a, it was a, it was a, it was a very profound inflection point in my life. Um, It showed me the power of the medicine, showed me that the medicine is something very, very special. And it just, it, it causes profound interest in me to start walking the path of the medicine. The very next day I, uh, I wrote up a very detailed uh, description of that whole profound experience. I mean, it was 
it was brutal. Like I vomited uh, all over myself inside the ceremonial space, like hands and knees. Like it was really gruesome. Um, but it, it, it was exactly what I needed. And I purged this, like, you know, the previous 10 or 15 years of toxic lifestyle. Um, and from there, you know, I just started walking the path. Uh, six months later, I was doing a dieta in Peru. I did a month-long dieta at a place in Peru, did a bunch more ceremonies, did some San Pedro. And then six months after that, I moved down to Brazil and I started working with the Santo Daime and the Unial de Vegetal and, and learning their traditions as well. And then, you know, six months or a year after that, I was back in Peru working with the Shipibo tradition and started running my own tours. And the reason I told you that whole long story is because because I had that existing foundation in tourism and that experience in South America, working with groups and with the languages and everything, I was able to just kind of immediately, once I started getting into the medicine, you know, a lot of people in my orbit who knew that I already had this base of experience in South America. And I was like this adventure guy, you know, um, as soon as I started getting into the medicine and publicizing my work with the medicine, people started asking me to help them have the same experience. So then just naturally, I started organizing small group tours to South America to work with the medicine. And over a couple of years of doing that, it really helped to reaffirm that path for me because every time, you know, I, I, would, I would still be working a sales job in Canada, but then, but then coming down a couple times a year with a group, uh, a couple times a year with a group down to, down to Colombia, Brazil, Peru, Ecuador, these different places in South America to do ceremonies. And every time I did, even if I might forget about the power of the medicine for the six months I just spent in Canada, um, every time I go down, it would really reaffirm that path. And, and the kind of effects that it would have on people would really reaffirm to me that I need to keep doing this. And it would just make me want to do one more. And then I do that one. Then it would make me want to do one more. And eventually... I met a partner, uh, Tatiana, in 2013, and she wanted to join me uh, in a, both a romantic and a business context. So that became my kind of number two. She became my number two. And then I, a couple months later, quit my, my sales job in Canada in 2013. And I haven't had a, a job since. I, uh, I started, you know, that probably for about a, a year after that, we were just running small group tours going to other centers. And then in 2014, we commissioned our first center, the, the Pulse Tour Center, which is now uh, uh, under a different name in Peru, but the center is still operating. Built that. And, uh, you know, that was in near Iquitos in Peru in the Amazon jungle. Ran that for a few years, had many amazing experiences there and, and saw thousands of people come through there with, with super profound, uh, life-changing experiences. And then uh, in 2017, I sold that and decided to move up to Costa Rica with some of my team, like, uh, like Melissa from that place. Tatiana decided not to join me after we broke up. Um, but uh, some of the, the others from my team came up and joined me. A lot of people from the community uh, came to visit us here and still do. And since 2017, man, I've been here in Costa Rica rocking it up at Soltara. And that's the story. That's incredible, brother. Yeah, it's, a, it's super informative too. I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't realized, uh, I think I'd heard loosely about the fall in rock climbing, but didn't understand the full context or exactly how bad you got your ass kicked there. 
So you were drink, you were drunk when you fell. Yeah. yeah that means drunk. that 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 blood clots were pretty much non-existent. So there's probably a lot of internal bleeding and man, I, I just uh, I just think about that. I've had some I've had friends and family die uh, from opiate addiction and opiate overdoses. And ayahuasca, um, obviously a boga is one that maybe not better known, but known for opiate addiction, but ayahuasca can be just as effective. Uh, I imagine the, the, those that go to those, you know, really, um, I don't want to say hardcore, but, you know, the, the medicines that have a forced surrender at points, you know, that, that really do a good job of cleaning you out and wringing you out with La Perga and with the squeezing that can take place. I imagine not only after, you know, the alcohol and, and self-abuse and, and I got my hand raised too, man. I mean, the first several of my experiences with ayahuasca were very hard ceremonies cleaning that out. But I can just imagine, you know, the, the, the medical use of opiates that you had at such a high amount must have taken, you know, some, some real squeezing to get your body clean of that medicine. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a wild, wild story, brother. That was the hardest thing I've ever uh, experienced in terms of a drug withdrawal. I remember, I remember the weekend I ran out of OxyContin. Eventually they stopped prescribing me them in Australia. You know, I was taking them a lot faster than what I should have been, you know, uh, and I was at the, this blues festival in Byron Bay with my friends in, um, in uh, Australia. And it was on a weekend and I ran out of OxyContin during that day. And about 12 hours later, I just, I started going through withdrawals, cramps and pains in my stomach, my back spasming and tightening up. I, I couldn't sleep. I just couldn't stay still. I couldn't be comfortable. All my muscles were like hurting and screaming. And that lasted for a few days. I, I tried to go back to work the, uh, the, the following Monday or Tuesday, whenever it was. And I recall driving to a sales appointment. I was, I, uh, at that point, I was working for a solar panel company selling solar panels. So I drove, uh, I'm on the way to a sales appointment trying to drive my car and I just couldn't even drive my car. I parked, got out in a pharmacy and uh, fortunately... There in Australia, they, they, you were able to buy codeine pills over the counter, like acetaminophen with codeine or paracetamol with codeine. So I went in and I got that and I took those and that got rid of my withdrawal symptoms. So I ended up taking codeine pills just for the duration of my stay the next month or two in Australia. And then I ran out of codeine pills after I left Australia and still some withdrawal, but it was much it was much more tempered than what it was, man, getting off of Oxycontin. Anytime people talk about Oxycontin addiction, I'm like, I understand what they're talking about, man. It is, it's some really nice stuff, right? Like it makes you feel really good laying down at night to go to bed when you're feeling that really warm, happy, comfortable, all is good in the world kind of buzz. That's great. But when you stop taking those things, it's hard. Yeah, I can, I can imagine I've, I've had, I mean, you know, my college career, I tried just about everything, um, for whatever reason, genetically, uh, the pain, pain medicine didn't sit well with me. You know, I've, I've snorted Oxycontin, I've keistered them before, (laughs) you know, that's in the poop shoot for those that don't know the lingo. And, um, I'd always feel fantastic for, you know, an hour or two and then I'd get sick. 
And, uh, you know, there's like a violent reaction where I'd start throwing up and I'd, I'd just feel like I was spinning. Even Kratom will do that to me if I have too much. Yeah. You know, Kratom, Kratom at a low dose feels really good for me, like an energetic buzz, uh, some mild pain management, things like that. But um, I, I like Kratom for a little bit of energy. But if I have too much, it feels just the same, you know, like a heavy dose of, of pain painkiller where I get really nauseous. And so I'm super grateful for that, that my body just reacts that way because no doubt, you know, that is a tremendous and amazing high. And it's clear, you know, we, we talked about it a lot on, on the podcast that I just did with you about when you look out to the external world and you see the lack of happiness, the abysmal outlook around the, the powers that be and the structures of what's actually running the world and all the shit. I mean, yeah, you just do from time to time, you want to fucking check out. And if you had Absolutely. something that was reliable at making you feel all the bliss, joy, painlessness, and warmth and love that you do with that, I could see how that'd be a real issue. You know, at least with the plants, you know, there's, there's a built-in mechanism. You know, anybody who's tried to take multiple rounds of psilocybin or LSD at Burning Man knows that you could burn that candle out real quick. Um, and, and ketamine might work, but that's that might be why ketamine's the only uh, addictive psychedelic. So I do, I do pretty well right now. Uh, I, I, I take Kratom regularly. It helps me with a lot of the residual pain that I get from this injuries. Like my body's twisted up now. My pelvis didn't heal in the right way. So when I sit, I'm sitting off to the side and one leg shorter than the other. And I still have a plate in my pelvis and a rod in my uh, leg. And, um, you know, I've had a couple shoulder separations as well. So my body's just not in very good shape. So I take Kratom regularly. That helps with the pain. And it also, it also provides a little bit of that sense of well-being. And you're totally right. If you take too much Kratom, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. You take too much Kratom, it'll make you feel nauseous. It'll make you feel like total ass. Um, so, you know, you got to really measure your dose with Kratom. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll have a little uh, MDMA, you know, once every six months or something like that. Have a have one of those nights where you kind of check out and go all lovey-dovey with the MDMA and and hang out with some friends. And um, I find that's enough for me. You know, I don't really need anything beyond that, especially, you know, when you got responsibilities and stuff like that. You can't be, you can't be recovering for three days after, you know, after a big night anymore nor do you really you know we're just talking about about how to keep your body healthy because nature holds us accountable so if you let your body get run down by polluting it and and overextending yourself that's when things like covid creep in and do some damage right yeah it reminds me of uh, tim corcoran who i mentioned on your show he's been a guest on this podcast twice now he talks about the native american spirit wheel which i'll very quickly mention the four directions the north uh, being represented the winter and, uh, you know, returning to source. It's also the land of responsibility. So that's our job. That's uh, uh, parenting. If you have kids, things like that. And it's our general responsibilities that most of us do a pretty good job of spending time in the East. We plant new seeds, the springtime, new beginnings. What is it that we wish to cultivate in our lives? The West, the shadow work, weeding the garden. What is it that we wish to remove in our life? Well, the South is the love of the body. That's the summertime. That's play. And MDMA fits fucking perfectly in the South, right? It's an excellent way to connect to people. It's an excellent way to hold space communicating, you know, relationship-wise. That's what it was studied for in the 80s 
in couples therapy. And it's absolutely brilliant there. You know, all the studies with PTSD that Rick Doblin's doing with MAPS, phenomenal. But let's not forget, this is one of the best tools in couples therapy with the right set and setting and, um, you know, the container held around that. But it's also just fantastic for play, you know, especially if it's pure MDMA and not something loaded up with amphetamines and other shit yeah. that's going to keep you up all night. Um, it can be really good. But again, you know, no different than anything else. Medicine is only medicine within the dose range. You go past that, it's going to be a problem. That's when it becomes poison. So uh, lots of good stuff there. Talk a bit about, you know, it, it, it's curious to me that, I mean, you, all of your travels, everywhere you went prior to Australia, you went all through the Amazon. You were all throughout the Brazilian rainforest and you hadn't touched ayahuasca then. Um, once you were introduced to it and you worked with Santo Daime out in Brazil and you worked with the Shipiba out in Peru, what helped you form the picture of what you wanted to create with Soltara? Because you guys primarily work with Shipibo shaman and curanderos, curanderas. Um, you have, you know, it sounds like I'm just fucking bowing down and blowing smoke up of your ass every time I talk about Soltara, but <clears throat> I've been to a lot of places and ayahuasca is hard enough. It's something Aubrey talks about, like the medicine itself, whether you're doing it in your living room or preferably with the black belt guiding you or whether you're down in the Amazon, it's hard enough. You know, the fact that you have air conditioning in your rooms, organic food and all the other amenities that come with that. And then the level of care that you have at your facility really blew me away. But talk a bit about what helped you formulate everything that went into Soltara, because it truly is. I mean, I can't recommend it enough uh, to people who are interested in diving into one of the, the more transformational forms of plant medicine. Sure, man. So uh, interesting you, you asked that question. So I actually learned about ayahuasca the first time um, when I was on a, a five-day uh, riverboat from Manaus to Belém, Brazil, going down the whole length of the Amazon River to the mouth before cutting down the coast. I was reading a, a book called 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl by Daniel Pinchback. This is back in 2008, right? So I was... I was very much a believer in the Mayan calendar. And it was, I always thought that something was going to happen in 2012, which is why I was living so frivolously by you know quitting my life in Canada, going traveling and stuff like that. But because back in those days, everybody's descriptions of ayahuasca were so frightening. It was so, just so intense, so sensational, this crazy medicine that gave you all these visions and caused these big purges. I actually was afraid of it. I, I, I heard about it. And actually, when I was on that riverboat, confirmation that it existed, uh, on that riverboat, you go from Manaus to Belém, but in the middle, there's a place called Santarang. And then you, you, the boat stops there, people get off and people get on. So about two and a half days into the trip. And one dude that I was made friends with on the route from Manaus was getting off in Santarang to go and work with uh, a chief there and, and, uh, and, and work with ayahuasca. So I was like, oh shit, I'm reading about this in this book. And there's a dude getting off the boat here to go do it in Brazil. But I didn't think about it again until, until I was basically laid up in a, in a hospital bed with no, nowhere to go, but up. So how did Soltara come about? Well, my very first vision, I guess, came when I went to uh, Peru. The second time I did ayahuasca, I went to do a dieta in Peru at a place called Chimbre, which is no longer in operation because somebody died there and the, and the shaman covered it up and was arrested. Um, 
But uh, yeah, so I was there and I did a few ceremonies and then I started kind of getting visions about, uh, about something that I wanted to create. And I started drawing sketches in my notebook of something I wanted to create. And I came up with a concept. And then uh, I went back to Canada and went back to my job. I was working on uh, commercial fishing vessels out in the Pacific Ocean. And um, about six months later, this, this desire to build my vision spurred me to move to Brazil. So I wanted, originally, I wanted to build my vision out near Manaus in Brazil. So I moved down there. I took a job as an English teacher and my objective was to go looking for property. I went out looking for property there. I built a present PowerPoint presentation with the kind of place I wanted to build, you know, and I wanted, and I thought it would be easy to raise money from some of the people I knew, you know, my, 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 my parents and their peers and stuff like that. But what I quickly realized was that nobody was going to give me money. I had no business experience I had, as I said, not completed any higher education. I hadn't had a job for more than a year at a time at all, ever. I jumped from job to job. So basically, my my resume just showed that I couldn't stick with one thing for more than a year. And, and I was not good at school. And, you know, I was just not applying myself really or, or committed. So I went there to Brazil with the intention of building that vision there. And it didn't work out. I only ended up staying there for three months, went home with my tail between my legs, back to Canada, working for my dad again, living at my parents' house again. That was in 2011. And uh, just at, at the start of 2011. Then, you know, I, I still had that vision uh, with me. And that's when I started uh, my first company, Pulse Tours, just running these, these group tours. When I, when I went down to uh, Peru and started working down there, and um, basically the, the first center that we built, I pulled the trigger on that because we started running out of space working with other centers because the ayahuasca uh, industry or field was picking up steam and, and it was getting more and more difficult for me to book space and places to bring my groups and they wanted money up front and then I would have to go sell the seats and if I didn't sell them, I would lose the money, etc. So I pulled the trigger on that based on a need. And that one, I just drew, I drew the vision on MS Paint. I drew the whole site map on MS Paint on my like, you know, um, on my Windows laptop and went out to the village and just like showed the picture I drew to the villagers and said, Hey, do you guys want to help me build this? And like 30 dudes from the village went out, you know, on canoes with chainsaws, cut down a couple of trees, made some two by fours and made some planks and came and built the thing. And that so, so I had just recently gotten into the Shipibo tradition. So when I went to Chimbre, that was working with the Chavin. And then when I went to Brazil, it was with the Uniao de Vegetal and, and the Santo Daime. So I had worked with those three traditions. And then um, in 2012, I started working with the Shipibo tradition. And that tradition 
really got me, got a hold of me. I just, I like the layout. I like the setup where it's, you're in a dark Maloka by your, you know, you're, you're really going on an internal, very introspective journey. No one bothers you. Someone's there to help if you need it, but nobody's asking you, how you doing? How you doing? You okay? Do you want to get up and dance around or play a guitar or something like that? You know, no lights. You're just there. You're going on your own journey. It's very psychedelic and very internal and very vision quest oriented. So that really, to me, became the paradigm to work with for my own tastes. So when, aside from that, when I started working at this other place, uh, Niwe Rao in uh, Peru, that's where I met my main healer who worked with me at the, at the pulse center that I built in Peru. So it, it became that Shipibo became the tradition and I really became affiliated and, and accustomed to and affectionate toward that tradition. And when we came to Sultara, so we ran that center in Peru and it was, it was good, but it was also reflective of the times. You know, we ran that from 2014 to 2017 at which, at which time the ayahuasca field was kind of going through a birth, a, a, a really coming into its own of, of how things were going to be regarded going forward. You know, there's a lot of charlatanism. There was a lot of wild West mentality back there. There were a lot of competition between emerging centers. There was a lot of competition between shamans and um, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on integration. There wasn't a lot of emphasis on intakes. It was more like, Hey, like about the experience, everybody was selling the experience and every magazine article in every documentary, it was all this kind of sensational big ayahuasca experience that people sought. So there was more of an, a focus on experience in that era. When we moved to Costa Rica, we, you know, in collaboration with our advisors, um, we, we became more conscious of the fact that what was missing in the ayahuasca equation was the focus on healing and integration, not so much just the experience because the experience is fleeting. You can come and have the experience um, and it's a profound life-changing experience. But if you don't put any effort into integrating that experience, you can go back into your regular day-to-day life. And then a month later, two months later, you're back, you know, you're back on the bottle, you're back doing the same behaviors that that you're doing before you haven't really made the most of that life-changing experience because because there hasn't been a structure to really carry that forward there hasn't been uh, a, a methodology to really ingrain that so we saw that big opportunity and big need and big hole in the in the marketplace for that when we decided to build soltara so we carried over the the shipibo tradition but we added a lot of emphasis on developing this, this integration program. And relating to what you said earlier about the comfort aspect of it, you know, when, as I said uh, earlier, you know, when I was in my 20s, I was very adventure focused. I really wanted to get down and experience the raw, the crude, the down to earth, the dangerous, the risky, you know, the backpacker lifestyle. And I, I went around the world and I got beat up. You know, I went around the world, got my nose busted in Panama, spent a night in jail in Panama. I had to get my, my nose broken black back into place. Went to Australia, you know, separated my shoulder and fell off a cliff in Australia. And I came back and at the end of my 20s, I'm like, dude, I'm beat up. I just want, I don't want any more accidents. I just want to be chill. But because I had such a basis of experience and adventure, 
that's where we took my first company, Pulse Tours. So, you know, we actually called that place the Ayahuasca Adventure Center. We built it out four hours away from Iquitos, right in the jungle tour hotspot, the jungle lodge hotspot. So you could only get there by boat. You had to travel two hours by road to Nauta and then two hours by boat to the center. So it's right in the middle of thousands of kilometers of jungle. Very amazing, very awesome place. Super, super uh, awe-inspiring. A lot of animals, a lot of wildlife, anacondas and dolphins and monkeys and sloths and eagles and parrots and like I mean, just everything you can think of. Um, iconic Amazon wildlife was right at our doorstep, right at our fingertips. And that sense of adventure was awesome for me for the first few years of my thirties. But over time, you know, the, the inconvenience and the challenge of living in the middle of the Amazon in Peru, as I got older as a person, as I got more mature as a person, as my body aged more, as the injuries I had aged more and started causing more problems, I, I, I got less and less interested in maintaining that real crude, adventurous backpacker lifestyle in the middle of the Amazon. Communications was a big issue for me. The cell phone signal was never working. The internet was never working. Very difficult for me to spend any time out in the middle of the jungle without uh, adequate communications. And also one thing that, one thing that, uh, that made the Amazon less permanent for me was that I really love to hike and, and walk around in the mountains and, and have space. I like a good five kilometers or 10 kilometers. But in the Amazon, you can't really go walking through the jungle, you know, because it's fucking dangerous. <laughs> it will fucking right? eat you. you. <laughs> Disappear, right? The jungle um, is alive. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so, you know, that was a big problem for me. So I'd end up sitting out at the center and it was awesome. But after like a week or two, you know, I would get stir crazy and I wouldn't be able to communicate. So, so then my decision to leave there was, was somewhat based on, on the lifestyle aspect of, of just living in the middle of the Amazon and me getting older. I just didn't really want to do that anymore. And then coming to Costa Rica in contrast, Costa Rica is at the other end of the spectrum, really, uh, in terms of Latin America. It's got you know, half decent roads. Uh, it's got, uh, you know, good services. The cell phone signals work. There's good internet. You know, people are educated and trustworthy and, and do relatively good work here. Um, the climate's perfect. And I found this property that is like beachfront and it's forest and it's mountain all in in one, you know, so I can go for my hikes here. The climate's great. Uh, I can go for a swim in the ocean if I want. There's all kinds of places, you know, just driving down the road for a couple of hours. I can go to all different kinds of weekend getaways, whether that's hot springs or whether that's cloud forest or whether that's beachfront surfing, you know, I don't surf, but if I did, there's all kinds of surfing spots. There's, there's bio reserves. There's, you know, um, nature hikes, there's national parks everywhere. And there's also a city, you know, a, a few hours away from Soltara. I've got a, you know, our, our Soltara HQs in a beautiful penthouse overlooking the whole city up on a big ridge. It's, it's just incredible. So you've got all the amenities, plus you've got the rugged nature. Um, and I just found that that was the kind of lifestyle that I was going to be interested in for the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of my life. So, you know, Costa Rica was the place and we put everything together. We took the Shipibo tradition. We added in the, 
uh, integration program. And we wanted to make sure it was a really nice, comfortable spot that we were all going to feel comfortable. We were all going to be happy and willing to, you know, thinking of it more of a long-term sustainability kind of aspect, you know, for us personally, because it's hard work. And again, like you said, it's hard work. You think doing ceremonies is hard work. Imagine running a center, man, you know, running a center is hard work and you don't need additional inconveniences and pressures from the environment to add to on top of that. Yeah, brother. Well, you've done uh, an absolutely excellent job. You know, I, I joked about this in the past, how, how, you know, and it's not, <laughs> it's not that I, I think I'm, you know, some type of veteran when it comes to this medicine, Dennis McKenna, I, th- I believe is one of your advisors. You know, he, he says he still feels like a rookie and he's done hundreds of ceremonies. Garber Mate says the same thing. Uh, but I had, I had come for 23 through 26 and they had this three hour orientation. I remember telling my wife, Natasha, I was like, I don't want to fucking sit through three hours of orientation. I've done this 22 times. What kind of shit is that? And then I thought, if I don't show up, everyone's going to see that I'm the only guy that didn't show up and I'll be the asshole who thinks the shit doesn't stink. So I was like, all right, I have to go. And 40 minutes into it, I look at my wife and I was like, if we had come here first, every experience we've ever had with ayahuasca and otherwise would have improved because it was teaching us further how to work with the medicine. It was showing us so much, you know, that I just, I really, really sat back and understood that, like how important that is to understand. And then of course, as you talked about integration, you know, the every week an email coming in with a different focus point on how to integrate that because it, it will become just a story, like a distant dream, a distant memory. If we don't ground that and use that to change our lives in 3D reality, it's just a memory. And so that integration piece not just you know saying the word integration, but actually how you guys piece that together week by week is the best one of the best programs I've ever been a part of. And uh, I can't, and I got a jam, but I, I really can't speak highly enough about Soltara. Where can people find you? Where can people learn more about Soltara? And where can people listen to your podcast? Well, uh, I guess the easiest answer is danielcleland.com we've uh we've got the new website up it's got our podcast and audio and video on it it's got links to soltara it's got a few documentaries i i've made a couple documentaries one's called drinking the jungle that was about, that was made in peru in the amazon at my first place the other one was called the plant teacher which features interviews with the the dennis mckenna gabor matze ken tupper a variety of other people, Jim Fadiman, the microdosing king. Um, and, uh, and it's also got reconnect the London real documentary, which was actually filmed at Soltara. So really good few hours of documentaries on there. Uh, I got, a, uh, my, my, my first book pulse of the jungle is available on there. I'm working on a new book called 12 laws of the jungle. We're still working on a subtitle, but it might be how to become a lethal entrepreneur something along those those lines. Um, yeah. So it's all there, man. Um, podcast is called the Daniel Cleland podcast. I'm on Instagram at Daniel C. Cleland and Soltara. You can uh, connect with Soltara at soltara.co and uh, 1-800-397-2000. That's or hit us up on email at letgo at soltara.co. And of course, we're on Instagram at Soltara Healing Center. So big smorgasbord of possible avenues there. I'll throw, I'll have my boy Jose throw all that in the show notes to make it simple for everybody. 
Thank you so much, brother. I really look forward to the next time we get to connect and certainly look forward to the next time my wife and I get down to Sultara to sit with you, brother. I love you, Dan. Speaking of, tell uh, Natasha I said hello and uh, and uh, the rest of the fam there. Much I will, love. brother. All right, my man. Be good. Thanks, homie.